Do you ever wonder what God is doing in the world? Do you ever stop and think as you look around you, God, what are you doing in this world? Right, with democracies crumbling, kids are fearing right now. See, they're asking the same question. <laughs> democracies crumbling, right, insurgencies rising pandemics lingering, people dying, fires raging, storms building. It's easy to ask that question, God. What are you doing in the world? And maybe you're one of those people who looks around the world and comes to the conclusion that, hey, you know what, there's no way there's a God. Not in a world like this. Not with all this mess. Or maybe you assume there's a God, or maybe you assume there are gods And those gods are desperately trying to get their way. So they're calling out, they're wooing, they're encouraging humanity from the heavens. Maybe like a coach, right? They're trying to call some plays from the sidelines, even cheer on the players. But they can't finally enter into the game and win it for us. right? Those gods are more spectators than they are actors, What's God doing in the world? Or maybe you think he's doing the best he can. But maybe your notion of God this morning is a bit bigger. He's the sovereign creator. This God is the provider and sustainer. He is not just in the passenger seat of the car, right? Eyes hidden, frightened behind Hands closed, right? Just praying we're not going to somehow crash the car. No, your notion of God actually has his eyes wide open and those hands on the steering wheel, guiding, directing, steering everything according to his own predetermined plans. But even if that's you, I trust you're often also left wondering, God, what are you up to? Why this? Why now? Why here? Right? What's next? This doesn't make sense, right? Where is this all headed? Well, friends, whatever your view of God this morning, we're all left with big questions about this world. And this morning, we're going to begin an 11-part series in one of the biggest books of the Bible that's going to give even bigger answers to those biggest of questions. And friends, that's the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Now, whenever we drop, as we are this morning, into a book of the Bible, sort of like a parachuter that drops you know, behind the lines into foreign territory, one of the first things we've got to do is we've got to grab our compass, we've got to get our bearings, understand where we are. So let's do this this morning. Let's start by opening right up to your table of contents. All right, so if you've got a Bible, let's open right up there to the table of contents. If you don't have a Bible, we provide them there in the seat backs before you. Go ahead and turn there, right to the table of contents. And what I want you to see as you look at the, at the Old Testament, our English Bibles divide our Old Testament thematically. They divide it thematically. So if you just look there at your table of contents, the first 17 books from Genesis all the way down to Esther, those books are basically books of history, beginning with creation, then the garden, then there's sin, and then there's exile from the garden. That's all Genesis 1 through 3. But God's not done with his people. There's Abraham as he calls out to him, and then he works through Moses to create a people for himself. He'll call Israel. He's going to deliver that people from slavery. He's going to give them his word. He's going to lead those people into the promised land. He's going to gift those people with leaders. And yet, sadly, the people disregard the word, even as we heard earlier in 1 Samuel 15. They disregard God's word. They're going to make a mess of things. They're going to be exiled once again. And friends, that pretty much takes us from Genesis through Esther. Now the next five books, right, Job right there through Song of Solomon, those really focus more on some of the personal experiences within the people of God. So these books are going to be full of wisdom and liter- their wisdom literature, devotional poems, right, all the psalms, right, the songs of the Bible are in here. And then we come to those last 17 books, from Isaiah all the way down to Malachi. And these are what we call the prophets. So if the first 17 cover Israel's history, and then the next five books, sort of individual experiences within that history, the last 17, the prophets, 
That's God's commentary on history. In the words of one, the prophets are like God's authoritative editorials. So the prophetic books are God's own commentary on what's happening in the world. And it starts right with Isaiah. So I want you to turn to Isaiah right now. And this is one of those great mornings where if you're one of those people who are like, oh man, I don't know where this is. I'm just going to flip through and pray my finger finds Isaiah. It's right there on the table of contents. I already have you there. Look at the page number. You can turn right there. All right, so turn to Isaiah. To Isaiah. Now, as you turn, I have to tell you, I've, been, uh, I've actually been really reluctant to tackle this book. Now, if you've been reading it all this week, you've seen how daunting it is to read, and perhaps you can imagine how daunting it might be to preach. I've considered it actually for a few years, but its sheer size and its mass, its complexity and its scope, I've found it, frankly, intimidating. So it's kind of like trying to wrap your arms around an elephant. Every time I try, I just never feel like I really get the sense and the weight of it. So I've actually kept pushing it off. I'm like, okay, I'll leave that for better preachers. Maybe someday I'll sit under someone preaching Isaiah. But, you know, like I said to my wife, when it came time to get the tattoos on my arm, I said to her, you got to go big or go home. Go big or go home. At some point, you just got to dive in. Friends, this morning, we're going to go big. This morning, we're going to dive into Isaiah. And Isaiah is intimidating at first glance. Epic visions, right, sprawling across 66 chapters. But friends, what can make Isaiah so intimidating, as is often the case with Scripture, is actually what will also make it so rewarding if we give our own time and attention to it. Because if you can grasp the message of this book, you have by and large grasped the message of the whole Bible. It's often been observed that Isaiah has 66 books, just like the Bible itself, or I should say Isaiah has 66 chapters, just like the Bible itself has 66 books. And in some way, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah mirror the 39 books of the Old Testament where God's people rebel, and so he brings judgment upon them. And yet in these first 39 chapters, like the 39 books of the Old Testament, there are going to be whispers, right? Whispers of a branch that will come, of a king that will surpass even David, one who's endowed with the Spirit, who rules with perfect justice, one who's even going to gather and restore God's remnant. And so while the skies in Isaiah are dark and foreboding, There are these rays of light in the first 39 chapters. And then similarly, as you come to the final 27 chapters of the book, these 27 chapters are a bit like the 27 books of the New Testament, where this Messiah appears. We're going to meet this king, and yet his face is going to take a different form. It's going to take the the form of one who is gentle and humble, Isaiah 42, one who faces opposition and persecution, Isaiah 49 and 50, one who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, Isaiah 53. And yet this royal king in the first 39 chapters and this suffering servant up to chapter 55, they join and become this cosmic conqueror in the last 10 chapters of the book the one who reconciles man to God, the one who ushers in a glorious kingdom without end. And right there we have so much of the New Testament before us. So as we move through this grand vision, Isaiah is actually giving us a peek behind the curtain of what God is doing in the world. Creation to new creation. Ruin to restoration. The vision of Isaiah is as big as the mind of God himself. And friends, this morning we're diving into the first five chapters. You may have thought Isaiah 1 to 5 was verses 1 to 5. It's actually chapters 1 to 5. And then there's these five chapters serve as a kind of prelude and a preview for the book. And they're going to introduce some of the major themes of the book. And so as we get into them, we're going to think about three of these dominant themes And these themes, these movements, are actually going to serve as our three points this morning. I'm just going to give them to you in advance. So first, we're going to look at the problem, which is our rebellion. First, the problem, our rebellion. Second, the punishment, 
our destruction. And third, the promise, God's restoration. So problem, rebellion, punishment, destruction, promise, restoration. And one of the things we're going to see in Isaiah, this is often the case with prophetic books, even books like Revelation, is it doesn't actually move linearly. Like we like things neat and orderly, like start here, you can trace it chronologically, land right here. That's not often how prophetic books work. They work more like a funnel. And so we're introduced to themes, and we'll be introduced to them, and those themes will circle back, and they'll circle back. But it's not just in a circle over and over. It is a funnel because that funnel's moving us, and it's driving us someplace. It's driving us someplace to a definitive end. And as we look at these themes of rebellion and destruction and restoration, we're going to see them, those three themes are going to unfold in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Then they're going to start over again in chapter 2, verse 6, and run through chapter 4. Then it's going to cycle again in chapter 5. We're going to see those recurring cycles. And yet the driving force behind it all is God's concern to have a holy people for himself. And in many ways, that's just the message of these first five chapters and the message of the book itself. God will have a holy people for himself. And Isaiah is helping us see exactly how, in the midst of this chaotic world, when it looks like everything has gone awry, how God is actually about that work. So let's first look at the the problem. Let's first look at the problem, our rebellion. The problem, one of rebellion. We open in chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, so right there, we're situated in the 8th century B.C., Right? Israel, at this point, has already been severed in two by civil war. So you've got the ten tribes in the north, which make up the northern kingdom, which are sometimes just referred to as Israel. And then you have the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And those two tribes in the south often referred to just in short as Judah. Now Isaiah notes right here that he himself was in the southern kingdom, actually living in the capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. And these times Isaiah lived in, these were tumultuous times. So there was roughly 50 years of peace and prosperity, but that's now all giving way to Assyrian aggression and domination coming from the north. It's the season of growing darkness and the season of growing doom and gloom that Isaiah is preaching in. And we don't know a whole lot about Isaiah, but the fact that he has access to royalty and to nobility suggests Isaiah is a man that was born into some stature, maybe a prominent family. He is a man of status. He's got, he can move around in influential circles. And though he had a reception among the elite, we're going to see his message sadly would not. And it begins his message right here with this vision That word vision is just often an Old Testament way of referring to divine revelation. So as much as Isaiah, as Isaiah rather, would, as much as he would see this vision and as much as Isaiah would preach it and live it and even die for it, tradition has he was sawn in two after the death of Hezekiah. Nonetheless, it is still God's vision. So it's going to come through Isaiah's human agency and yet it is of divine origin. It is of God himself. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So right there, understand what's happening. The Lord is summoning the entire universe to attention. Kind of like when a general enters a room of soldiers that are at ease, and at the sight of his presence, they all snap to attention. So here, when the Lord speaks... All of creation springs to attention at his voice, anxious and eager to hear what the Lord has to say. And what will he say? Verse 3, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people Do not understand. 
So stop right there. Isaiah is saying, listen, even an ox knows its master. Right? A donkey even knows the hand that feeds it. But Israel, the children the Lord has named and reared and graciously loved, they, Isaiah says, do not understand. As in, they won't understand. They refuse to understand. Israel is already being pictured as an ungrateful, spoiled, headstrong child that has rebelled against the Lord. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, or as other translations will say, depraved children. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Five times in chapter 1, we come across that word rebel or rebels. In fact, the entire book of Isaiah is bounded. The book is bounded as with book ends actually by that, word, by that word rebelled. So it's how Isaiah opens, right? His very first verse there in verse 2, his first words speak of Israel's rebellion. And actually in the very final chapter, the very final verse, chapter 66, verse 24, we are lamenting those who still rebel against God. Isaiah, you could say, is a book about humanity's rebellion particularly Israel's rebellion from infancy. The Lord has raised her, and yet we read that word estranged, right? They're estranged from him. The the image is one of a child that has turned his or her back against her parents and won't listen and walks away. What accounts for this rebellion? You know, it's often easy to look at another people, to look at another situation, and can it often be easy to point the finger But I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, you know, what about us? As we read about Israel, we need to be asking, are we actually much different than they are? You know, do you ever stop and wonder why you do those things you know you ought not to do and why you don't do those things you know you ought to do? The Lord has given all of us a conscience. He's given all of us a a capacity to understand right and wrong, a capacity to make moral judgments. Every day, nonetheless, we do things we know we ought not to do. Right? We cheat to get ahead. We lie to those we love. We blow up in anger. We use our words, maybe, or our position of power, or we use our bodies in order to manipulate others. We know such things are wrong. We don't have to be told such things are wrong, and yet we still do them. Why is that? Look down to verse 5. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness, as in there is no health in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Isaiah is saying right there, all of us were infected with sin. And sin's ruin in us, it is total. Right? We would say from head to toe, right? From head to toe, that is the ruin of sin being pictured here in Isaiah. And there is no soundness, as he says. There's no health in us. As Jesus would say, we are slaves to sin. Slaves to it. And Isaiah would even go so far, as you look down to chapter 1, verse 10, he'll even go so far as to refer to Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the kind of slaves to sin they are. Now, it's no wonder at this point that Isaiah and his ministry was met with laughter or booze. You know, this isn't the kind of inspirational, heartwarming message you come to hear at church. But you have to wonder if Isaiah is on to something. If he's on to something. Because, you know, every worldview says our biggest problem is out there. It is outside of us. And the solution lies within us. But recognize the Bible actually has the exact opposite message. It says our biggest problems are actually inside of us. 
right? We are not, in fact, the solution. We are, in fact, at the core of the problem. So I remember in the, the last year I lived in Washington, D.C., before we moved here, there was an inner city, the big inner city local high school near us. It was at the bottom of sort of the educational rankings. There was lots of theft. There was violence, right? You name it. And so the city chose to dump over $10 million to sort of renovate this old school. And when they were done, it was gorgeous. It was pristine. It was immaculate. It looked better than many Ivy League institutions when they were done with it. Yet within just one year, that beautiful school was trashed. Broken windows, graffiti everywhere. Because you see, the problem, the, the problems that school faced, those problems couldn't be fixed, right? They can't be solved by a single drill and some coats of paint. Those problems ran much deeper. They ran into the brokenness of homes, into the brokenness and fallenness of human hearts. And friends, so it is with us. Deep down, Isaiah is helping us see that in our nature, we are rebels. Yeah, societal structures, they can curb some of that rebellion, but they can't finally stop that rebellion. They may serve those structures as a check on us, but those structures can never cleanse us. We are rebels, as I often say, rebels without a cause. That is our life. And that's not a popular message. And it wasn't a popular message in Isaiah's day. It's not in our day. And Isaiah gets clever. So if jump forward to chapter 5. Isaiah's going to do something in chapter 5. And he knows, okay, this message, it's hard to break through the front door. So I'm going to put this in a song. I'm going to try to get to the back door of the people's hearts and into some of the leaders. And I'm going to write a love ballad. Maybe I'll get an audience. Maybe I'll help them understand in many of the ways that Jesus told parables. So jump forward to chapter 5, verse 1. Let me, this is Isaiah, sing for my beloved, sing to the Lord, my love song concerning his, the Lord's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, wild as in sour, as in bitter, as in worthless and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? So stop right there. You see what Isaiah is saying of the Lord. God saying, listen, I selected the best land. God has selected the best land. He has tilled the soil just right. He has planted every seed of that vineyard, every vine with precision and care. He made sure to just the right amount of sunshine, just the right amount of moisture, just the right amount of fertilizer, everything. He labored over it. It should have produced the best bottle of wine the world has ever known or tasted, right? Wine Spectator 100, right? That's what it should have produced. And yet, back to verse 4. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, as in, again, sour, bitter, worthless grapes? Jump down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Oh, there's the flip. That's when everyone starts hating the song. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he, speaking of the Lord, looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. That's the sour, worthless fruit. For righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Right, same song as in chapter 1, just different chorus. God's people were rebellious. 
If you keep reading on in chapter 5, you're going to see chapter 5, verse 8. They confiscate property from the poor. They steal from the poor. They were moral relativists. Right? That's not new to us. They called good evil and evil good, chapter 5, verse 20. They padded their pockets with bribes. They deprived the innocent of justice, chapter 5, verse 23. What you have toward the end of chapter 5 is just one long catalog of corruption. That's how chapter 5 works. The vine is diseased. It's rotten to the root. And it's why it will be burned in chapter 5, verse 24. We see Jesus get his own teaching right from these images. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, Jesus says, and thrown into the fire, Matthew 3.10. And friend, where is that rebellion most on display We might think it's in some of the things I've already noted, and certainly it is on display there. But it's on display in a place we may not first expect. That rebellion is on display in how the people reject the Word of God. It's on display in how the people reject the Word of God. So look down to the second half, chapter 5, verse 24. The second half of verse 24 of chapter 5. We read... For they, speaking of Israel, have rejected the law, as in the instruction of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So friend, recognize this morning, your own relationship with God's word says everything about your relationship with God. Your relationship with this word says everything about your own relationship with God. So you can claim to love God all you want. But if you find no delight in his word, if you find no desire to understand it, no desire to even read it or to keep it, obey it, if in fact you seem to delight more in closing that word and living contrary to that word, then friend, it is not God you love. It's not God that you want, despite whatever you might say. Jesus says in John 14 that the one who loves God is the one who loves and knows God's word and keeps that word. Which means the mark of a genuine Christian is one who trembles at God's Word, who lets it dwell in him richly by constant meditation upon it, and who tests and reforms his daily life in response to it. You simply can't love God and not love His Word. For it's in the Word of God, it's right there in that Word that we come to know the God of the Word. And friends, this is what Israel will have none of. They have rejected God's Word because they have rejected God Himself. And the punishment will be their destruction. And that's where we move to next. That's sort of that second movement. There's there's great rebellion we see in chapter 1. We're going to see it. I I didn't walk you through all of it, but it's in part of chapter Two and three, it's in five as we read. But as we move from that rebellion, we think now to the punishment, which is their destruction. That second movement of punishment for their rebellion and destruction. It's destruction. Now, if you read chapters one to five this week, and I hope you did, you will be really helped if you read ahead, right? So I'm going, what, 11 weeks through 66 chapters, basically six chapters a week. And imagine that, a chapter each, every, each day, and then you come here, and you get to hear it preached. I'd encourage you to do that. Read ahead. If you did, chapters 1 to 5, there is no escaping. There is lots of judgment in these chapters, lots of judgment. And friends, that can be hard for us. It can be hard for us to hear and read messages of judgment. But friends, my job is not to preach what I wish was here. My job is to preach what is here. It's to preach what is here, what God has put here. And we struggle, some of us do, because when we have conversations about God's judgment, we talk about it like it's arbitrary, like it's capricious. 
as if God perhaps is some abusive parent or husband who just flies off the handle at the smallest offense. And we deem that unreasonable. We call that unfair, even cruel. I wouldn't love a God like that, we reason. How could I love a God like that? Well, friends, you would be right. We ought not to love a God like that. But there's nothing unreasonable and there's nothing unfair when we consider God's judgments. God's judgments are a function of his justice. And his justice is that quality of exactly being right and being reasonable and being fair. God's justice is his unwavering commitment to do right, to right wrongs, and to hold accountable those who do commit wrongs. So recognize the justice of God is always and ever an expression of God's own character. What God does is always consistent with who God is. So we read, therefore, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. You're already in chapter 5 still, I think, Isaiah 5, 16. We read, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now, when we move from judgments and start talking about justice, that's language we understand. We understand justice. Even as a culture, we love, you might even say we're infatuated with the topic of justice and and social justice, about righting society's wrongs. And this is not the time to enter into that conversation. But we do recognize it often when we see it. So whether or not, when we think of justice, whether or not we're talking about something as simple as justice and sport, right, fair sport, we want to see that. We don't want people doping and cheating. Or whether or not it's something a lot more charged, like the murder of the unborn, or policies that exist to promote racial hatred and partiality. We've all become experts when it comes to justice at identifying our area of concern and then pointing the finger. We have that category, and we will demand justice. We will march for justice. We just don't really like when God turns the mirror on us and takes our finger off that thing we love to talk about and points it on those whole range of things that we like to be blind to. Jesus reminds us that it is often so much easier, isn't it, to see the speck in another's eye and to be blind to the log in our own? And that's part of what God does in these chapters. He turns the mirror back on his people. In chapter 1 alone, the only word that rivals that word rebel, and it also occurs five times, is this word justice. We read, just flip back to chapter 1 with me. Flip back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17. Isaiah will say, this vision of the Lord, he'll say to the people, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Right? God's people were to reflect the very character of God himself. God's people were to be just, just as God is just. Only they weren't just. We've already heard of some of that catalog of corruption back in chapter 5. But then consider how he goes on to address them. Look chapter 1, look down to verse 21. God will say directly to his people, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So what does God do with his people? If this is how they're behaving, what does he do? He rejects their worship. Part of his own punishment upon his people is he rejects their own worship. So just in chapter 1, just go back there to verse 11. Look back to verse 11 of chapter 1. The Lord will say to the people, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Right there, what are we seeing? Israel's religious rot, it runs deep into their own religious worship. So these whose hands have just stolen, these hands that have taken bribes, these hands are the same hands that are now raised in worship at the temple. And such hypocrisy, God says, is an offense to him. And he's calling them out for it. Just again earlier as we read, he calls out Saul for his hypocrisy in 1 Samuel 15. Or as Jesus regularly does with the religious leaders of his own day. But friends, it's not like we're immune to that hypocrisy. I hope you don't think you're immune to such hypocrisy. So these mouths that were just a few minutes ago, these mouths that were opened, opened with smiles, singing songs of praise and shouting out to the Lord. How many of those same mouths gossiped about another? How many of those same mouths have spoken cruelly or unfairly of another? How many of them have in frustration railed against a spouse or a child, maybe even this morning on the way to church of all places? How easy it is, right? When we walk through the doors of this solemn assembly, how easy it can be to put on a smile and to sing and to play the part. Sadly, we can relate to that too. And if left unchecked, when we don't repent, when we refuse to hear correction from the Lord through his word or the correction of his people, that too disgusts God. It's why he calls their offerings vain, as in ineffective useless, right? They're an abomination, he says to them. All their worship, Isaiah says, has become an insufferable burden to God, verse 14. And so he turns away. He refuses to listen. I wonder if you even have a concept of that, of coming in your own hypocrisy and your worship is an insufferable burden to God. I don't think many of us have that category. Isaiah is offering them a stern rebuke. And part of what he's saying is you cannot presume upon your religious privilege. You cannot presume upon your religious privilege. And yet that's an easy thing to do, right? We've confessed sin at some point to God. We understand ourselves to be forgiven by God. We do some religious duties. We check a list of boxes. And so we therefore excuse our sin. And yet God here, he is saying, he won't have that. When our hearts are hard and cold to God, it does not matter how great our own religious accomplishments are. All of our righteous deeds, however we would define that, whether it's our baptism or our dutiful attendance at church or even maybe our church membership, or our gifts of money, whatever those righteous accomplishments are, God says with a cold, hypocritical, rebellious heart, those are an abomination to him. Because they flow from a heart that is fundamentally opposed to him, that finds no delight in him. And so he is sickened by them, and such religion, he says, that religion infuriates him. Friends, recognize you can love religion and still hate God. Israel was a master at that. Friends, sadly, the world is full of such people that love religion and still hate this God. Friends, could even some of you be in that room, this room, with that idea this morning? So friends, as an expression of God's justice, he brings an end to such injustices. Look forward with me to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day, referring there to a future day. It's a day of judgment. 
against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. You hear echoes of Revelation 6 right there. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Friends, stop. Israel right there. Or Israel, sorry. Isaiah. Isaiah is warning Israel and warning us that there is a day of judgment There is a day of destruction that's coming. And on that day, when it comes, everything that you and I have trusted in, whether or not be our wealth or our power or our security or even our man-made religion, all those things will fail us. They won't be able to save us. And on that day, there will be no place to hide. Now, we recoil at that message, right? We say, no, 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 God is love, right? God is gracious. And we pit such attributes against one another. We pit his love against his justice. We say, I don't believe in a wrathful God. I believe in a loving God, we say. And if that's you, recognize that's what Israel thought too. They thought the same thing. It's exactly what has brought them to this point. And Isaiah is helping us see that a God who is all love and a God who is all grace and a God who is all mercy, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath, that is not God. Isaiah is saying that's an idol. That's an idol of our own making. So recognize no matter how many injustices we might suffer from, right? suffer really from the hands of others, no matter how many we might suffer from the hands of others, no one will ever suffer the slightest injustice from the hand of God. Even in judgments like this. There won't be a hint of injustice And how God acts. So friends, what hope? I mean, goodness, at this point, what hope is there for us? If our souls are sick, if our ruin is total, right, from head down to toe, and if all our religious accomplishments are powerless to save us, what hope is there for us? Well, that brings us thirdly to the promise. It brings us thirdly to the promise, God's restoration, God's own restoration, This isn't what's highlighted heavily in these chapters, but I want you to see the hints of it already coming out in the very first chapters of the book. And we get a hint right there in chapter one. Right, God has already rebuked his people in chapter one. He has charged them. He has exposed the blood on their own hands in chapter one, verse 15. God's piling it all up, right? The hypocrisy of the religious worship. It's an abomination, he says. And just at this point, when we would expect judgment, when we would expect the gavel to fall upon God's people, there's a pause. God pauses. And we read in chapter 1, verse 18. Look right there, 118. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, right? He's saying, though they're like blood. He's already called them murderers. Though they're like blood. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, right there we've encountered some of the most amazing and unexpected words of grace in the Bible. So what Shakespeare's famous Lady Macbeth, right, what she could not accomplish, right, the guilt she could not rid herself of by scrubbing those hands, by trying to wash the blood off of them, 
We read here that actually such blood-stained hands, well, those stains will be removed. They will be removed. Now, how that happens is not yet clear in the book. But we get a slightly better picture of it. Turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah jumps to speak of a, he says, in that day, referring to a future day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Now, how is that? Like, holy is exactly what they're not. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So recognize Isaiah is saying there's going to come a day when everyone in the Lord's city will be holy. Now, how can that be? Because again, we've seen that is exactly what they aren't. Right? How does the leopard change its spots? How does the sick heal thyself? Well, they can't. Isaiah is saying the branch of the Lord, though, that branch of the Lord can. He can see that their filth is washed. He can see that their souls are cleansed. He will do it for us. So notice here in chapter 4 the allusions to the Exodus. Right, The cloud and the, and the fire by day and by night. Remember in the Exodus, that symbolized God's presence with his people. But even then, with God's presence, only Moses or the high priest could enter into that tent of meeting. Only Moses or the high priest could meet and gather in God's presence. And yet notice on this day, this future day that Isaiah describes, notice there's no tabernacle. There's no tent mentioned. Instead, what's mentioned is a city. It's a new Jerusalem. And notice in this new city, The cloud and the smoke, a symbol of God's presence. Notice it will be, verse 5, over the whole site of Mount Zion and her assemblies. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. The whole site, all. Isaiah is saying that the Lord's tent, once shut to any apart from the high priest that might dare to enter it, That tent, Isaiah is saying, will one day be available to all. All will gather there. And in this new city, all will be welcomed to the presence of God. All will rejoice under the shade of that canopy and under the protection of their God. That's the day that Isaiah holds out. And it is a glorious day where his people are cleansed. Friends, you need that day to be your day. You need that future, Isaiah spells out, you need that to be your future. How does that, though, become your future? How does that become my own future? Well, it's through this branch of the Lord. You know, in God's providence, we heard that wonderful message last week from Zechariah 3. And in God's providence, that branch of the Lord was further identified for us. Do you remember how Matt talked about that branch of the Lord as an image of God's own Messiah, an image of God's promised king, the promised king that will come and cleanse his people? Now, how the king does that isn't, again, made explicit. But we do get these hints. These hints. Look back, chapter 1. Last time I'll have you flip around. Chapter 1. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Right there we read, in the sickness of our sin, what happens? Well, we are struck down in the sickness of our sin because our sins have what? They have bruised us. They have left us with these festering wounds. Friends, that same imagery is imagery that will be picked up in Isaiah 53, where we read of this branch, this king, who is also a suffering servant, 
one who was stricken, struck down, smitten by God and afflicted, one who was pierced for our transgressions, one who was bruised for our own iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Breadcrumbs whispers right here of what the Lord's Messiah and the suffering servant will do. One who is himself without sin, and yet he will bear our sin as our substitute. This one will justly stand before God and will stand in our place as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God for us. Friends, Isaiah is helping us see that this branch of David the king this suffering servant, they come and they end up being one and the same person in Jesus Christ. And that's the face we'll see as we move through the book of Isaiah. Jesus alone can save you. You can't save yourself. This branch only can save you. Only he can wash you and cleanse you. If you've come in any way presuming upon your own religious pedigree, if you've come in any way trusting in yourself and assuming in yourself God will save you, maybe because of the quality of your life or maybe it's just because of the goodness of your works or maybe you think, you know, God grades on a scale and I'm really not that bad. I'm in my first year of college. I see what these people do. I'm actually pretty good. Listen, we can think all kinds of things. But friends, God is just and the wages of sin is death. It is destruction and the solution, Isaiah says, is not to look within. It's not to dig deeper. It's not to try harder. It's not in here. The solution is outside of us. It is Jesus Christ who hung on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for sinners so that you and I wouldn't have to bear that wrath. And the same Jesus rose from the grave, victorious over death, so that if you would repent of your sins and trust in this Jesus, you can know everlasting life. Friends, only this Jesus, only this branch can cleanse you from your sin. Friends, only this Jesus can wash you white as snow. So I ask again, what is God doing in the world? You look around, it's often hard to know. It's often hard to anticipate, hard to make sense of, hard to trust God sometimes, hard to understand Him. It's hard to see how what's happening about us can in any way be good for us. But I hope you're beginning to see as we go through this book that when it looks like all is bleak, when it looks like everything is just unraveling like a ball of yarn, God is not done with His people. He's not done with you. He is, in fact, just getting started. And that future is glorious. Friends, will you be a part of that future? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray we take to heart this message of Isaiah. It is often heavy. It can hit us like a ton of bricks. But we praise you for the honesty of it, for the truthfulness of it, that you are a God who speaks and doesn't just tell us what we might like to hear, but what we need to hear. That is your grace to us. And God, we pray that we would have humble hearts that would receive your word and see in that word the glories of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.